May I please ask you this morning to open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we'll begin reading in verse number 1. As I mentioned last week, we're going to begin a series of sermons working our way through what I believe is the greatest sermon ever preached, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. Today, as reported, I'll be preaching on, and forgive me, I have to say it in the right, with the right attitude. Get your blessing. <laughs> get your blessing. But to say it more properly, get your blessing. <laughs> In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1, the Bible says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What a tremendous promise. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you, Falsely for my name or for my sake, rather. Rejoice, he says, and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Can I ask you to please bow your heads with me and let's pursue God's blessing. Father, please help us this morning. I don't think anybody can improve upon what Jesus has said. I believe, Father, that these are your words that you commanded your son to say. God, help us to do them honor this morning. Help us, Lord, to have ears to hear. Speak to our hearts. Fill me, please, with your spirit. And might you help all of us today, God. We need it. We need this blessing, your blessing. We've come to get that today. Please, God, send us not away empty. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just quickly make a couple remarks before we get into the meat of this passage. I'll remind you that if you were to read Genesis chapter 2, where God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat the fruit of any tree, but the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you eat thereof, you'll surely die. Would any of you this morning be worried about eating of that fruit? You're not Adam and Eve. And I seriously doubt in your garden you have the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you were to read in Genesis chapter 12, where God said to Abraham, Get out of thy country, get away from thy kindred unto a land that I shall tell thee of. None of you would read that and immediately think, God has commanded me to leave South Africa. Now, some of you are considering that for completely different reasons. But none of you would leave South Africa based on Genesis 12 and verse 1. 
you understand that God told that to Abraham. If you were to read in Exodus 19 where God said, I have brought you unto me on eagle's wings, and I'm going to make you as a nation, a nation of priests, a holy nation, a peculiar people. You wouldn't read that and think, ah, he's talking about South Africa. You wouldn't think that. God is speaking to Israel. When you read in the book of Psalms where the Bible says, The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. God won't change his mind. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. God promised David that one of his children, one of the descendants of David, would sit upon the throne of Judah. None of you, by reading that verse, would think, eh, one day my boy will be the king. You wouldn't think that because David, or I'm sorry, the Lord clearly said this to David. I, I, I remind you of those passages to bring to your attention in Matthew 5. Jesus is speaking to a, a crowd of Jews that have not yet experienced the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. They, these Jews, have been waiting for hundreds of years for their Messiah to come and to give them their kingdom back. And that's why there's so much mention made of if you are this way, then the reward is the kingdom. You inherit the earth, that land of Canaan. You'll be comforted because now you're mourning under Roman oppression. So please understand, and we mentioned this last week, that at the time Jesus said this, the finished work of Calvary was not available to mankind. The gift of God that is eternal life was not available as it is today. We are looking back at the cross and back at these things. And we have to remember that when we consider this doctrinally. Now, the doctrinal issues aside, can I remind you of something very practical and something very applicable? On the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father said to Peter, James, and John, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye Him. And that by itself tells me, when Jesus speaks, I want to give Him my undivided attention. Yes, I recognize the context. I understand how everything hinges and changes at the cross. I understand that. I won't ignore that truth. But just because Jesus said this before he died does not mean we dismiss it as not applicable to our lives. He is describing for us how he wants his disciples to act. And therefore, we d it demands our utmost attention. Today, I want to talk about get your blessing. Everybody these days, are, they are looking for a shortcut to happiness in life. Can you amen that? Is, isn't that true? People are looking for a shortcut to happy, happiness. That's why there are so many get-rich-quick schemes in the world. Sucker born every minute. Because we think we can bypass all the hard work that it takes to be happy. Jesus explains to us in this passage what is required for a peaceful satisfaction in one's heart, for that happiness, that contentment. 
I think too many times we, we look at these get-rich-quick schemes and, and sometimes we find them in the church. But people are looking for a get-rich, a get-spiritually-rich-quick scheme. They want the prophet slash evangelist slash apostle slash reverend slash doctor to come by and whoom, hit him with a blessing wand. I remember years ago when I was a young man, I was raised Catholic. My friend took me to a special meeting one night, a revival. At that time, I had never heard the word revival. I must have been 14, maybe 13. We went into the church, we sat through the service, and per my dad's instructions, I'm not allowed to pay attention to what the preacher's saying. And I didn't. Most, most teenagers don't need to be told that. <laughs> that comes naturally for whatever reason. But I purposely ignored the message. But my friend had positioned us on the front row of this church. So at the end of this service, something very strange to me, I had never seen this happen before in person, this prophet-slash-evangelist came down from behind the pulpit and he asked the front row to stand. (laughs) Front row, you feeling nervous? (laughs) Not until I come down there with you, hey? This prophet, he came down, he said, everybody rise, and one after another, he started at one end, and hand to the head, bam, hit the ground. Hand to the head, hand to the head. I thought, oh, oh." as a young Catholic boy, I only only had one go-to move. Oh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I promise you, I stood there as fast as I could, working the sign of the cross all over me. My grandma taught me that that runs the devil away. She did. So I thought, ooh, I hope Grandma's right. (laughs) I was scared. Now, folks, please understand, all those people next to me, in hindsight, I can look back and, and I know that they had good intentions and they wanted to get a blessing. They wanted to feel the presence of God. They wanted God to move in their hearts and they were simply doing what they were told, going with the flow when that prophet, preacher, evangelist, whatever it was, when he got to me, he could see I was doing this as he was coming down the line. When he got to me, he went, ah, no. (laughs) He skipped me, left me standing there on the front row all by myself, unblessed. People are desperate for blessings. You know how desperate they are? If a man of God, I use that term loosely, tells his congregates, go outside to the tree, the tree you see out there, and eat the leaves off the tree. They are anointed leaves. They will bless your life. I've seen it with my own two eyes. The members run out the door immediately and begin eating, shoving the leaves into their mouth. Maybe you've heard of it, where the evangelist says that, that grass that grows on the church lawn is anointed in special grass. Eat the grass and you will be blessed. 
It's become so bad that people will actually come forward and allow their pastor to spray them in the face with doom. How can you not see the irony in this? It says doom. (laughs) Why do you want a face? Forget that it's bug spray. It says doom. Why would people submit or subject themselves to this? Because they're desperate for a blessing. The word blessed, it means happy. They're looking for a way to make their life better, to make sense of it, to put a smile on their face, and they're looking for a very quick answer. As you can see in this passage, Jesus, as he gave these eight what we call beatitudes, which is a theological word, simply means blessings. When he explained these eight virtues that will help you achieve a blessed life, he did not elaborate. Did you notice that? Blessed are the poor in spirit. But what does that mean? Blessed are they that mourn. Uh, How can mourning equal happiness? Could you explain that, please? And by the time you've raised your hand to ask the question, he says, blessed are the meek. (laughs) He didn't take time to elaborate. I can only assume, then, that one of two things was happening. Number one... Jesus must have assumed that the crowd he was speaking to, they were already familiar with these terms. And therefore, he didn't need to elaborate. They knew. They were familiar with being meek and a peacemaker and a pure heart. They, maybe they had that, those definitions figured out. Or... Maybe he assumed that if there was something in the list that the people were not familiar with, that his words would mean so much to them that they would spend the next week or two or month or two figuring out how do I perform what this man of God just said. I don't want to take for granted today that everybody here has been in church a long time and you know all these terms. So I want to speak about what these things mean, but I'm going to do so briefly. I want to initiate the uninitiated. Yet at the same time, I don't want to rob you. I don't want to rob you of the satisfaction that comes with meditating on these things, thinking them through, asking questions, looking through the Bible at other places, other verses that would help you understand these things. These will be the fundamental core aspects of a happy Christian life. It is worth your time to study and show yourself approved unto God. This morning, just to help you get started on that search for truth, let me quickly move through what each of these mean. And then I have a three-point sermon. Verse number three, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's easy to say that this is simply humility. And that would be a very quick and easy explanation. But I believe that the wording that Jesus has chosen lends itself to something much, much deeper. If someone is poor, then that person has 
insufficient resources. Let me say it again. If someone is poor, they have insufficient resources. That poor man needs help from other people. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that you are not sufficient by yourself to make it through this life. You need help from God and others. You see, the word humble wouldn't capture all of that. But to say poor in spirit, you might think of it like this, it's the opposite of being egotistical and proud and thinking you have everything figured out. You need no one's help. You need no one's advice, no one's counsel. You don't need the words of Christ to make sense of your life. Thank you, but no thank you, God. I have it figured out. I believe the Apostle Paul said it best. In 2 Corinthians, he said, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. The Apostle Paul was most certainly trained and qualified to do what he was doing, yet he knew, I myself am not enough. I need help. David, also a very capable man of God. At one point, David gave an offering towards the building of the temple. Listen to this. One offering equaled over a billion dollars modern money. One offering. Now, we're trying to build a building, so we need to pray for that blessing. Amen. Come on, get your blessing. (laughs) Sow your seed of faith. (laughs) Here is an incredibly wealthy man. Here is a man who is God's friend, who, who God said, this is a man after my own heart. Listen to what David said. But I am poor and needy. Yet the Lord thinketh upon me, Thou art my help and my deliverer. Make no tarrying. Please don't wait. Make no tarrying, O my God. David, an incredibly wealthy man, both physically and spiritually, recognizes he must have God's help. The only other place in the Bible where you will find poor and spirit put together is in Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 2. This tremendous verse, God says, for all those things hath mine hand made and all those things have been, saith the Lord. Please listen to this part. Please give me your undivided attention for this. God said, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit. Contrite, what does that mean? A broken-hearted man, sorry for his sins. God said, that's the man I will look to. That's the man I will pay attention to. Is there a greater blessing than to have God saying, I recognize what you're doing? I approve of it? To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means, God, I'm not smart enough to run my own life. Please tell me how you want me to be. 
I was created for your purposes, not mine. So you tell me how to order my steps. I cannot do it alone. The man that is poor in spirit knows how to ask for help. And he doesn't get offended when people offer him help. This man sees value in the people around him. He doesn't look at them as a nuisance. He looks around and he says these people could possibly be a help because I need help. The next thing in the list, blessed are they that mourn. It seems like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? You want to be happy? Then be sad. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, it's better to go, go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men. In the immediate sense, we'd all like to go to the party instead of a funeral. But if you look at the broader picture, the funeral will do you more good. It will help your heart. It'll make you consider what life is all about. But think of it this way. To mourn means to feel and to express grief and sorrow. How pitiful is it when a man cannot have his heart moved by sorrowful situations? How sad is it when your heart becomes so hard that something serious is going on, some, some real trial and tribulation, and your heart remains hard and unmoved? The person that can mourn, the person that can feel this grief, at least has a soft enough heart that God can change it. It's easy to see why somebody would mourn over the loss of a loved one. We understand it if somebody is brought to tears when a, when a job is lost or their dreams are dashed or an accident has happened or the news of a disease. We understand why a person would mourn. But might I remind you there's more to life than just these physical problems. You should also be able to feel spiritual pain. You should also be able to look at the world around you, recognize the pathetic spiritual condition that it's in, and be moved with compassion. That is part of what it means to be those that mourn. Furthermore, you can take great comfort in this. If you are mourning today, feeling grief and sorrow, Jesus has promised that you will be comforted. Now this promise is only as good as the one giving the promise, right? And Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. As believers in Christ, we have the wonderful promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So even on our worst day, even your worst day as a saved man is better than your best day as a lost man. Jesus said in verse 5, Blessed are the meek. What does it mean to be meek? Again, many people simply equate this with being humble. I will say that humility is a necessity for meekness. But meekness, again, goes much deeper. I pause for effect. I want to grab your attention. Meekness means when you're provoked 
when you're provoked, you react gently and patiently. It is the complete opposite of a hot-headed anger management case. Folks, do you understand what meekness is? When somebody is genuinely bothering you, you do not flip out and lose it. You rather hold your tongue and react patiently and gently. Meekness is an incredibly difficult virtue to master. I find myself constantly drawn back to verse 5 and reminded by my Savior, yes, they are legitimately bothering you. However, follow in my footsteps and do not revile those that revile you. When they threaten, do not respond with a threat. Rather, react the way I did. How many marriages today would be fixed if one or both spouses would make an honest effort at meekness? How many, listen to me, please, would you look this way? How many of you would have a better workplace if your boss would make an honest attempt at being meek? How many of you bosses could make a a better environment for your employees if you would just calm down? Verse 6, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. To hunger and thirst for righteousness means you have a sense of justice. You, you want justice to be done. You want wrongs to be made right. I think all of us can appreciate my next statement. We recognize that South Africa is riddled with political corruption. Amen. That's true. We know that. Did you know that pretty much every government is the, in the world struggles with that? That's not like South Africa owns that. <laughs> That's a global problem. We recognize corruption as something very evil. We see that somebody is abusing their position. And it bothers us. And we want that wrong to be made right. We want these corrupt politicians to be brought to justice. We have that hunger and thirst within us. If you care about your country, you want these things made right. Let me remind you now that corruption not only exists in the political world, but also in the personal realm. You should detest political corruption. And at the same time, maybe even more, detest your own personal corruption. The times that you allow your freedom, your liberty as a human being to make choices, when you abuse that liberty, when you abuse the grace of God, and sin willfully, you should have a hunger and thirst, yes, to see justice done in the world, but also justice done in your heart. God Take the wrongs in my life and make them right. I don't want to allow for these things to go unjudged. Examine me. Search me, God. Tell me where I'm not right so that I can make it right. In verse number 7, blessed are the merciful. This is a brilliant thing to say right after talking about justice. Bring them to justice. Give them a punishment. Have mercy. (laughs) What a wonderful balance we find in the words of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus did not say, blessed are those that show mercy. He said, blessed are the merciful. What's the difference? To be a merciful man means that you live with an attitude of being able to overlook faults and you're in a constant readiness to forgive people rather than biting their heads off when they do wrong and immediately bringing them to justice. A merciful man would rather wait and say, this person is, they, they are afflicted with the same human nature as I am. They are capable of sin just as I am. And if I give them time, they might realize their problem on their own and come right. Let me rather deal with this mercifully. This man would rather forgive than punish. This man would rather overlook the fault and be gracious. Not, not pretend that it doesn't exist. At a certain point, you have to put your foot down. But a merciful man opts first for mercy before he does for wrath and punishment. That's the attitude that God has towards us, and aren't you glad of it? Aren't you glad that with God there's a perfect balance of both justice and mercy? And that He didn't just knock you dead the first time you stepped out of line. God, by the way, just because He doesn't drop the hammer the first time you sin does not mean that He tolerates or allows your sin. It means He's merciful, that He's long-suffering. Jesus next said, Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure? To be pure, I think you can understand it two ways. Number one, purity is actually the absence of something. It is the absence of defilement. It's the absence of sin. <clears throat> purity. However, I think you can understand it another way. Purity can be the singularity of a certain thing. You're familiar with my examples. When you go to the store and you pick up the bottle that says pure honey, you expect nothing but honey in the bottle. How disappointing to turn it over, read the ingredients, and find out honey is number five on the list. <clears throat> Rather, there are preservatives and food dyes and all sorts of other things that have been added to the honey. Bless God, give me honey. Pure olive oil should be olive oil, right? Don't mix anything with it. Somebody that is pure in heart has sanctified the Lord God in their heart. They love God with all their heart, with all, with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Their heart, their life, their mind is dedicated to the, to the Lord. It is in submission to Him and to Him alone. They are not a double-minded person, part-time here, part-time there. Pure in heart, God, it's all yours. The next thing, blessed are the peacemakers. The big biblical word for this is reconciliation. But peacemaker works very well. Somebody who makes peace. Jesus is the greatest example of this. There was a barrier between us and God. 
Jesus came and did what was necessary to remove the barrier of sin so that we could enjoy fellowship and a oneness with God. We could have unity with God. We could be together with Him. A peacemaker actively seeks to remove barriers between people. And, and I will extend that to the person of God as well. That person actively seeks to remove the barrier of sin between Jesus Christ and the sinner. That is also a peacemaker. Might I educate you on peacemaking by explaining the opposite of peacemaking? And that is gossiping. When somebody sets out to put a barrier in place by sowing the seeds of discord, by putting information into the heads and into the ears of a people that will willingly listen and put assumptions. And sometimes gossip is even the truth. You're simply telling that truth to somebody that doesn't need to hear it. You're not making peace. You're making it difficult for the person who's hearing that to now talk to that other person. Peacemaking is looking for a way not to ignore the obvious problems, but because you would have already mixed it with mercy, meekness, righteousness, you would use the information and skills you have to take two people that aren't getting along and find a way to bring them back together rather than looking for a way to push people apart. Peacemakers. You can generally tell the difference when you start talking to somebody, if they actually have your best interest in mind. Friend, be a peacemaker. Look for ways to improve relationships all around you, not to make them worse. Verse number 10, blessed are they which are persecuted. Now, he didn't stop there. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness sake. We're all persecuted at one point or another. To be persecuted, it can stem from somebody saying something ugly about you to somebody killing you for what you've done. But in Jesus' case, he said, blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Again, this is brilliant. He says, be meek. But in this verse, he says, you're allowed to take a stand for what's right. And don't let anybody move you from what's right, even if it costs you your reputation, even if it costs you your life. Stand for what is right. Jesus did not say choose this virtue over that one. He gave all eight together. All of these things collectively make up a blessed man. If you would like to further educate yourself as to what these things are, read the four Gospels. Because Jesus Christ lived these things every day. You will see the examples of poor in spirit, meekness, merciful, persecuted, how to handle it, all of that you'll see in the person of Jesus Christ. You say, how was Jesus poor in spirit? How is he not sufficient? Don't you remember what Jesus said? I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Jesus is the perfect example. He is the living embodiment of blessing. 
I've given you a brief description of what these eight virtues entail. And now I want to look at these things not as eight separate virtues, but as one complete list. And when you look at the list of what Jesus expects from his disciples, I, I think there are three deeper and broader truths that emerge from the list as a whole. Number one, and I think this will be fairly obvious, this list is concise yet comprehensive. It is concise, that is, it's short, but it's comprehensive. It covers it all. Now, I don't know about you, I appreciate, I appreciate short lists, <laughs> especially when they are to-do lists. <laughs> Shorter the better. But I, I've learned this just through years of preaching. If, if you say too little, people don't pay attention. If you say too much, people get bored. I think I have about 10 more minutes where I'm still in that window of having your attention. <laughs> if I were to show up for church this morning and simply say, listen, folks, blessed are thee, blessed are thee, blessed are thee, read this and say, now there's how to be blessed. Uh, and just walk <laughs> off. Uh, you probably wouldn't pay much attention to it, would you? But if I keep you here for two hours explaining the eight things, there's a good chance that a few of you will give me that Baptist wink. <laughs> so the list, I see what Jesus has given us in these eight things. It's a brilliant list. It's concise yet comprehensive. It covers it all. Listen, he said to be, listen to the balance. You need to be humble, but you can be bold. You need to be meek, but you can still stand for what's right. You can mourn, but there is a time to rejoice. You should make peace, but you will still have enemies. People persecute you. You can be merciful and still yearn for a sense of justice. Outstanding. That covers it all. I, I don't have to be just one-sided. I don't have to be a doormat in order to be a good Christian. But I don't have to be so aggressive that I bite everybody's head off in the name of Jesus. It's, it's a brilliantly balanced, concise, comprehensive list of how you should live. People are looking for lists like this. Jordan Peterson has a book. I don't know if you are familiar with the name. Twelve Rules for Life. I've read the book. I've passed it on to a couple of other men. He has some interesting ideas. Twelve rules for life. Oh, if there were only just twelve. By the way, he's coming out with a sequel, so evidently twelve wasn't enough. <laughs> now, I, I, to be honest, I, I truly enjoyed the book. I didn't agree with every word of it, but the twelve rules were interesting. The last one is make time to pet the cat. I'm, I'm not sure that's one that I would commit to memory and live by, you know. But help yourself. Twelve rules for life. Buddha, he gave the eightfold noble path. Oh. <laughs> People are always trying to find concise yet comprehensive lists by which to live. In the Old Testament, look at how God did it. There are two great laws. 
I reminded you last week of those two great laws. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. But, Lord, that's so little. You may not keep my attention. He says, okay, hang on a second. I'll come down on a mount. And he did. Mount Sinai. Let me elaborate on those two great commands. Let me break it down into ten. And the first four explain the first great command. They deal with God. The last six deal with man to man. They explain the second great command. Do you see how it fits? The two are elaborated in the ten. Now, if you would like further clarification, some people want to study it deep, there are 613 different laws, regulations, statutes, ordinances, precepts throughout the first five books of the Bible. Did you know that all 613 of those will fit under the ten somewhere, and those ten fit under the two? It all works together. Yet, if you, if you want to have not too much, but not too little, you give us the ten. Nice and balanced and doable. Doable. You hand a man, all of you husbands in here today, if your wife hands you a list, a to-do list with 613 things on it, <laughs> I get the reaction I'm giving you. You just laugh at it. You say, yeah, right. But remember at the altar, you did say, I do. <laughs> That's why it is a to-do, to-do list. That's a whole other subject. We're not going there. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expressed the two great commandments. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Great command number one. The golden rule, do unto others as you'd have done unto you. That's great command number two. Then he gives us these eight beatitudes. And this is all the advice you need for every aspect of life, no matter what you're struggling with. You will find the proper advice to come out with a happy conclusion. And a way to go through that problem with contentment in your heart, you'll find what you need in these eight things. If you would like even more elaboration, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you can read all of Jesus' teachings, look at every miracle he performed, look at every situation that he encountered with people, and you will see these eight things elaborated. But... He's given it to us here. Concise, comprehensive. You can write it on the back of a business card and live by it for the rest of your life. It's balanced and it's doable. It's a brilliant list. There's another thing I learned from the list. And that is, Christ cares about my contentment. The list is concise and comprehensive and therefore it is doable, it's usable. But the fact that he came down on the mountain and actually talked about how to be happy tells me that he is concerned about me being happy. The Jews had been under the oppressive rule of their enemies for 650 years. That's a long time of being unhappy. And then Jesus showed up and said this, Blessed are ye, blessed are ye, Blessed are ye. And if you are a Jew sitting at the bottom of the mountain, you're going, yeah, right. Listen to the language carefully. Listen properly. <laughs> he did not say, blessed will ye be if you do this. 
He didn't say that. He put it in the present tense, blessed are ye. Jews under Roman oppression, under the boot of their enemy, he said, you guys can be happy right now. Yes, the reward will be the kingdom and you will be comforted one day in the future. But even right now, if you're mourning and poor in spirit and meek and hungering for righteousness, you can be happy right now because you're doing exactly what I told you to do. And that's as much as you can do given your circumstance. This man actually cares about my happiness. That means something to me. I'll never forget one time in Malawi, I was out witnessing in the village of Chinsapo. At the time, we had a church in this village. And I approached a man, he was stumbling down the road. I gave him a gospel track, and as he turned around, he confirmed my suspicions. He was grossly drunk. But not so drunk that he couldn't speak or carry on a conversation, but not sober enough to actually think clearly. That man said, ah, what is this? I spoke to him in Chichewa a little bit. He said, I talk English. He said, okay, I will also talk English. And I explained to this man what the tract was about and how he could be saved. You know what that drunk man did? Something that no other Malawian ever did in the nine years I was there. He started to cry. And he said, you... You came from America to live in this country to tell me how to know God. I said, that's right. He said, yeah, man. That is a big thing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And he began to cry and he put his arms around me and I said, my goodness. I've never had anyone show such appreciation and bless his heart. He's too drunk to get saved. <laughs> I traveled 13,000 kilometers to stand in that village and tell that man about Jesus. And what he walked away from that, he didn't understand the whole message, but he did learn one thing. This man really cares. Forget 13,000 kilometers. Jesus came across an ocean of stars. He, he ventured out from the throne of glory and came all the way down to this earth and was born humbly in a manger and grew up as a man. And, and now he stands on the mount. This is God incarnate. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And when he stands to teach us, he says, I recognize the oppression that's all around you and that life is difficult. Here's how you can be happy now. I don't need Joel Osteen for that. This stuff about your best life now and just speak it into existence and just speak life. Oh, no, sir. No, sir. Jesus said, I have come and I'll, you have to do something to find this blessing. Blessed are ye. And then he says... Here's what it takes. But I learned that He cares. And that He wants me to be happy right now. Friend, He wants you to be happy right now. I better move quickly.
one last thing I learned from this list. When I look at this list, I see my created purpose spelled out in eight short lines. I see my created purpose. Have you ever asked this question, why am I here? I'm not like, why am I in this building this morning, but on this earth, why am I here? Have you ever wondered, what does God expect from me? He's giving you the answer. Your created purpose has just been spelled out for you. Think of it this way. The Jews that gathered at the foot of this mount. You know what they knew about Jesus when he said these things? They knew that he is a prophet, that he is he's proclaiming things in the name of the Lord, and they knew he could do miracles. By this time, he had already changed the water to wine. He had healed the deaf, the lame, the blind, the lepers. He, you can see that in chapter 4. He was going from city to city, village to village, doing these miracles. So these Jews sat at the foot of the mount, and they knew this is a mighty prophet of God. But that's all they would have known. They had yet to see the soldiers arrest him in the middle of the night. They had yet to hear the story of how Jesus was smacked in the face and had his beard ripped out. They had no idea that one day the soldiers would take those cat of nine tails and run them across the back of Jesus, exposing his flesh and digging furrows into his back. They had no idea that soldiers would stretch out his arms on a cross that he had to carry and nail those hands to that cross. They had no idea that Jesus would be lifted up, that the cross beam would be completed, that his feet would be nailed to the cross. And for six long hours, Jesus hung there with the world wagging their heads, reviling him. And this meek and merciful Lamb of God Although he could have called for 12 legions of angels and demanded immediate justice because he loves you and me so much, he stayed there on that cross. These Jews didn't know that. These Jews had not seen the body bruised and torn, taken down from the cross, lovingly placed in a grave, sealed with a stone, and for three days and three nights the disciples huddled in fear, and then that miraculous Sunday morning when Jesus is raised from the dead and with a brand new, glorified, resurrected body, He exits the tomb with the stone still in place. They only moved the stone after He had come out so that everyone else could see that He was no longer there. For 40 days, Jesus taught the disciples And then after that, he ascended to heaven where he is now currently seated at the right hand of God. Did you know that the Jews sitting at the foot of that mount, they knew none of that. They did not know that this is God manifest in the flesh. They did not know that. They had yet to piece all of that together. You and I are privileged to know the whole story. We know not only did this man care enough to come and teach us, he cared enough to come and die in our place, to go back to heaven. 
that he waits at the right hand of God until the day that he is allowed to come and take us home. Can I ask you to do something for me? Armand, you're the cameraman today. I'm just going to sit right here. I want you to place yourself at the foot of that mountain as an interested listener of what this mighty man of God is saying. But when you look up on, on that mountain and you see the person of Jesus, don't look at him as if, it's, as if he's just another prophet. Don't look at him like another best-selling author trying to get you a quick blessing and then out the door. Look up the mountain. There's your creator. There's the one that died for you. There's the one who is currently seated in glory. That's him. That's the one. And now your creator is standing there above you telling you, this is why I made you. The title of my sermon is, Get Your Blessing. But, Jesus had something else to say. He hadn't said it by Matthew 5, but we know it now. You only learn it in the book of Acts. We get this information. You know what Jesus said? It is more blessed to give than to receive. If you really want to get a blessing today, let me tell you how to do it. This is the best blessing you'll ever get. Give one to the Savior. You are listening to Him tell you how He wants your life to look. You know what I'm thinking as I sit there at the foot of the mount? Wow. This is my Savior. This is my Creator. This is the Almighty God. What do you want me to do? I'm sorry, say it again, say it again. You want me to be? Poor in spirit. Happy to be that. Happy to be that. What else do you want me to be? That there are times I need to mourn? Absolutely. Absolutely. Whatever you say, if that'll make you happy. Blessed are the meek. Lord, if that is what you want from me, more than happy to do it. Finish the phrase. Happy wife. Happy. There is truth to that. Let's go a little deeper, though. Happy Savior. Happy life. He just told us how we can be happy. Now, when we get to heaven, Revelation 5, you know what we're going to say? Blessing and glory and honor be unto him that sits upon the throne. I want to give him a blessing. It's better to give than to receive. So today, you can get your blessing. But how about you concentrate on giving one back to the one who died for you? Let's all stand, if you would, please. Let's have our heads bowed, eyes closed, please. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I gave you the list of virtues. I, I explained them quickly because those eight things can take you a lifetime to master. 
I intentionally kept it brief so that you go home and think deeper. Ask yourself this this morning. Where does my life not match those eight things? Ask yourself this. Of those eight virtues, which ones am I missing? Happiness is not achieved by doing one or two. You need the whole list. Say, Brother Mike, I am not happy. I'm depressed. I'm in a bad place. My life seems to be spiraling out of control. My advice to you is check the list. What is it that you could take from that list and apply to your life? And then at the least, you can look at your Creator and say, this is what you told me to do. And I'm so happy to be putting a smile on your face. Happy Savior, happy life. That's a good life. I'm going to pray just in a moment and dismiss you. Thank you for your patience this morning. If anybody here has never personally given their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, please come and ask. Please come and ask. It's of the utmost importance. Father, thank you this morning for your mercy, grace, help, for your time. Thank you for coming down to this world wrapped in human flesh to tell us exactly how you want us to act. Lord, we don't take it lightly. Thank you for showing us how much you care. And what you told us, Lord, is doable. You made it clear, concise. Lord, we'd like nothing more than to put a smile on your face. Please help all of us to go out, not just today, but throughout this week and the weeks to come. Help us to be mindful of what you taught us this morning. Let it grip our lives so tightly that the imprints of its fingers are forever shown. Thank you, God, for how you've worked. And we ask you and thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.